I want to begin by saying good morning to our, uh, our wonderful brothers and sisters at our Hobart Portage campus and at, uh, at Cedar Lake. Great to have you here with us in one church now, uh, studying God's Word together. And uh, to begin, I'd like you to imagine with me that uh, you had the opportunity to go to dinner, and sitting around the table with you were uh, at this table Bill Gates, Robin Williams, Hugh Hefner, Michelangelo, and Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, that would be an interesting dinner, wouldn't it? Kind of fun to say, hey, you know, hey, Bill, what's it like to be rich, right? <laughs> Uh, Hey, Michelangelo, what's it like to be, like, brilliant? Uh, You know, Hugh Hefner, I don't want to hear from you. (laughs) Now, imagine with me that somehow you were able to take all of these characters and combine them into one person. Like, all of the wealth of Bill and the sensual experiences of Hugh and the design and building brilliance of Frank, and the hilarity and the laughter of Robin, and you put all of them into one incredibly gifted uh, uh, man with incredible experiences. We're talking about Solomon. Is all of those guys in one. In fact, he's all of those guys and more in one single person. This would be an interesting person to have dinner with, don't you think? Just to ask about, hey, what's it like to be you? What's it like to have all of that? And maybe to ask the question, hey, does it make you happy? Like, are you like the happiest person in, on the planet with all that you have and all that you've experienced and all that you've built and all the fame and all of the beautiful things and people. That's what we have with Solomon, and that's what we have described for us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is uh, the one chapter I was looking forward to, I would say, more than any in the entire book, and this section in particular because it is a, uh, it's an assault on the American dream. It's an assault on the values of the society that we live with us. We're going to spend two weeks on it, and I think for reasons that you'll understand once we get into it. So my plan is we're just going to take it in parts, okay? We're doing chapter, or verses 1 through 11 today. We're going to take it in parts, and we begin now in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. This verse is a summary verse. He's going to basically restate this again in verse 11. So he begins with his conclusion, and he ends with his conclusion. And he uh, is talking here about pleasure, which he says is vanity. And just to remind ourselves, what does the word vanity mean here in Ecclesiastes? It, It literally means vapor. Okay, vapor. What is a vapor? It's there and it's gone. So it's very fleeting. And it also appears to have substance, but when you try to grab it, there's nothing to it. All of that together, translated here, vanity or futility. NIV goes with meaningless. All of this is meaningless. And in case you're maybe new today, We've been talking about Ecclesiastes, and we've been talking how you have to read Ecclesiastes with three eyes. You've got to have one eye on Genesis 3 and the fall when man fell into sin. You have to have one eye on the text here in Ecclesiastes, and then you have to have another eye forward to the cross and to Jesus, okay? So Ecclesiastes is Solomon describing man's search for meaning apart from God, okay? And he explores all of these various ways that we seek happiness and we think that we're going to find significance in life. And he uh, tells us what it's like. And his summary here at the beginning is, it feels like nothing really matters. It feels like everything is hollow. It feels like everything is empty. It feels like a vapor. Okay, Everything is like a vapor. 
Now, in Solomon's case, this is not for a lack of trying. And this is part of what makes this such an intriguing section in the book is that we're talking about uh, Solomon, who was a man with God-given and God-enabled intellect, matched with incredible wisdom and sort of philosophical understanding, combined with an amazing ability to build and design and all the things that he did, combined with a guy that was incredibly rich. All of that together is Solomon. He's kind of a Renaissance man. You know, you think about the two books that are attributed uh, to him, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, and Song of Solomon, which is about something else, okay? And both of those are Solomon, okay? Kind of the, you see the categories that uh, were part of his nature. So he decides here now, he's going to do an experiment, okay? Searching for meaning apart from God. He says, I'm going to do an experiment now, and I want to uh, see if pleasure might be the thing that actually meets the longing in my heart. And so he tests it here. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And one of the keys here is to realize that Solomon isn't testing pleasure. He's allowing pleasure to test him. He's allowing pleasure and possessions and things in this world to test his heart, and he wants to see if on the other side, he actually feels happy and satisfied, like the longings and the aches are gone, okay? So he's testing his heart. And uh, he does so in five categories. They are laughter, alcohol, money, music, and sex. Now these five are very out of date and irrelevant to our contemporary culture. Okay, sarcasm dripping there. I mean, this is part of why this chapter is so uh, poignant, I think, is that this is the world that we live in. This is, the, this is the American culture, the American dream, the pop world that we live in. Is This is what everybody's told you got to go for. This is what life is all about. you got to go for the gusto in these categories. And here you got the guy who did that to the X degree, and he has something to say about what you feel like on the other side of it. And so uh, let's begin, first of all, with laughter. Okay, that's where he starts, laughter. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Laughter. We all like to laugh, don't we? I mean, it just feels good to laugh. But do we ever step back and go, you know, what is actually laughter? Like my little daughter, Madeline, she's eight months old, and when, when Jennifer kind of puts her hair in her face and swishes it around, she just up comes this, ah, you know, fun sound, this fun laughter. We didn't teach her that. It's just part of being human is that we, we like to laugh. What is laughter? It is, it is a moment of happiness inside that comes out with a, human, with a sound, with a human sound, you know. Now, sometimes that sound is pleasant. Sometimes it is an annoying sound. And I hope you all married well in that category. But we love to laugh. We have a, say, a saying, laughter is the best medicine, right? And I sometimes will see in the local paper, they'll advertise uh, that, you know, some organization is offering laughter therapy. Have you seen these classes? And uh, it's like an hour, you pay a certain fee, you go there, and they just, they just laugh the whole time. And the idea is that you leave feeling better than when you went in because you've had this experience of laughter. Now, we look at laughter and we say, laughter's good. It's good to laugh. Solomon here says it's madness. Now, is he just like a massive killjoy? Come on, Solomon, loosen up a little bit. Or maybe, he, you know, he, he actually didn't hear good jokes or something. No, that's not what he is saying here. He is giving a moral evaluation about laughter and if you think about laughter, there is some laughter that is not this way, you know, why did the duck cross the road or whatever, but a lot of laughter comes at the expense of others. It is laughing at people or about people. Um, laughter oftentimes has a certain profanity to it. It has a certain uh, naughtiness or, you know, there's something tawdry about it that kind of everyone sort of giggles and, and laughs. And it was the same back in Solomon's day. And he looks at all of that and he says, you know what, I, 
I don't necessarily call all of that good. And the main reason that laughter, he calls madness here, is that it is so fleeting. You know, think about when you laugh, right? It's at least a good three or four seconds of happiness, followed by what? (sighs) Now I'm back to me again. Old, depressed me. Maybe somebody will make me laugh again. I mean, it's very short, isn't it? Laughter doesn't really last that long. In fact, chapter 7, he is going to say about laughter, he's going to say it's like the crackling of, um, you know, the, 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 the kindling that you put in a fire. Just that sort of pop, 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 pop. It's there, it's gone. It's there, it's gone. Laughter is like that. And another thing about laughter is that it so easily masks deep pain. You can laugh and be seriously depressed at the same time. I mean, think about, for example, that class clown in school growing up, the guy that quick-witted or whatever, he tried to get everybody laughing. Oftentimes, those kids are ones that are, you know, they've got lots of pain in their life. There's lots of pain at home, and that's just a way for them to get attention. You can be hilarious and depressed at the same time. Do you know this guy right here? Arguably, I would say, Robin Williams, uh, probably the number one laugh guy in my lifetime. You know, there's a lot of comedians and such, but I would say he's probably top of the list. Here's his resume, a few of them at least. Mork and Mindy, Aladdin, Patch Adams, yes, Flubber, that was a classic, Night at the Museum, Happy Feet, and I stopped there first service, and I had somebody come up to me after service, and they were like, hey, what about Mrs. Doubtfire? <laughs> she said, I almost shouted it out because you didn't mention it. So now I've mentioned it. Just calm down, folks, all right? <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. Robin Williams, I mean, if you ever saw him in late-night interviews or things like that, talk about quick wit. That guy had quick wit, didn't he? Just in his, you know, his uh, voice characters and all the things that he did. He made the world laugh, and he committed suicide August 11th, 2014. The second category that Solomon gets to is alcohol, and I'll include uh, drugs with this, narcotics. Here's what he says in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for children, the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Alcohol, still a fairly popular option in the world around us, would you not say? Alcohol, it provides a certain kind of pleasure Right? There's a certain sort of altered state of reality that alcohol can take you to. They talk about the buzz of, of alcohol. Uh, drugs and narcotics are even more effective at doing this. And uh, I don't think that Solomon here is saying that, hey, I became, you know, I became a drunk and got stoned every night. That's not what he was saying. He was, because he says here, I retained my mind as I evaluated the experience that the alcohol was providing for me. Or in other words, he retained his objectivity. So he is drinking, he's experiencing that altered state of reality, and he is evaluating as he is what that is doing for him. Okay? One commentator, he wanted to know if rationally controlled indulgence in pleasure gave meaning to life. So alcohol, and you know, obviously he is not condemning alcohol here, he is participating in it, but he is a guy that we know understood the dangers of alcohol. This is the same Solomon who writes in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Okay, so he wrote that. And he writes or experiences what we see here in Ecclesiastes 2. Now, alcohol is one of these interesting things. Like, if you're really depressed, people drink alcohol, which is itself a depressant. (laughs) If 
you're depressed, do you want more dep- to take it in? But why do people do that? It's because alcohol has a kind of soothing and numbing effect when you are hurting or depressed or whatever. It kind of masks the pain. And if it tastes good on top of that, it's all the better. Okay, So we live in a world that is uh, awash in alcohol. Okay, There is alcohol every restaurant you go to, every grocery store that you go to. There are liquor stores all over the place that you can, all they sell is alcohol. So um, I wonder if we've ever thought about this as theologians, okay? Alcohol as theologians. And it's, again, it's not just alcohol. There's lots of things that you can smoke that have a similar effect. And there are things that you can shoot into your veins that will similarly have an effect, alter your perspective on reality. And so we look at that and say, how can this be a bad thing? I mean, why would you call it vanity? And so if we just step back for a second, okay, from the alcohol itself or the heroin or the nicotine or whatever you want to talk about, anything but caffeine, that's off limits, uh, with this. <laughs> or you think about all of the debates about, on these subjects, not just whether, you know, Christians and alcohol or, um, you know, legalizing of marijuana, for example, hotly debated right now, what's going on in Colorado and the effect on all of that. Or just think about a grocery store. You walk through a grocery store, I mean, all the ones that I know of around us here, they have, they'll have an entire aisle, both sides, filled with alcohol. Now, I want to encourage you to walk down the alcohol aisle of your local grocery store like a theologian. Okay, what do I mean by that? How would you know if a society was really unhappy? How would you know if an entire culture was hurting? How about the wild popularity of products that numb the pain? So we go back to Genesis 3, okay? The fall. Man made in the image of God, man made for God. Man sins against God. God says, because you've sinned, you are going to die. And on top of that, I can't have you in my presence anymore. You're out of the garden. And so Adam and Eve walk out of the garden now, and they no longer have relationship with God. What are they feeling inside of them as they are walking out of the garden? Something's missing. Something feels empty. Do they go skippy out laughing and happy out, out of the garden? No, they are depressed. They are hurting. They realize they've totally blown it. Probably not even to the effect that it actually was. So they walk out of that garden now, and they feel empty. Their relationship is altered. Their relationship with God is altered. Everything has changed. And spiritually, down inside of them, something at the core of who they are is missing. Now, the drug addict may not see it this way. Okay, when, when he is or she is shooting up, she's not saying to herself, I'm getting high because I really miss God. But what is actually going on with the person who is using these kinds of drugs to numb the pain? This is a spiritual matter. Spiritually, down in their soul, down in their image bearing, if they had joy and satisfaction in God, would they need the needle? Would they need the needle? Now, some of you are taking issue with what I'm saying here. He's later going to encourage us to drink wine. I'm not there yet. I'll explain all of that. But the broader point here is that he is testing the ache and longing of his heart with alcohol. And he is asking, does this make me happy? And the vanity of drinking or smoking something is pretty easy to see. What is the vanity of it? How long does it last? A couple hours? You feel okay for a couple hours, right? And then on the other side of the effect of that drug, how do you feel? Just as depressed as you did before, right? Why? Because the problems haven't gone away. And your soul is saying something's missing. 
So for a short period of time, you feel better, but then back to real life. Alcohol, drugs, can these things satisfy us? I wonder if you recognize these people. I'm sure you do. Don't even have to say their names. Okay, these are famous people, famous for many things. You know what they all have in common? They all died either by intentional or accidental uh, drug or substance overdose. They're all dead today. Marilyn Monroe, August 5th, 1962. Elvis Presley, August 16th, 1977. Michael Jackson, June 25th, 2009. The third category that Solomon talks about is money and possessions. Here's what he says in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. This is not your average sort of local richest guy in town. Okay, we're talking about world-class wealth. Centuries after Solomon, you mentioned Solomon, and people think really, really rich guy. Okay, so this is... Wealth kind of boggles the mind. And just to give you an idea of some of the things that we know about Solomon's wealth, here's 2 Chronicles 9. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly, okay, this is every year, 666 talents, not including the revenues brought in by merchants and trailers, trailers, traders. They brought it in with trailers, though, so it fits. One commentator said, you know how much 666 talents of gold is a year? That's 25 tons of gold a year. (laughs) Now, I had a banker try to calculate during first service. This is kind of what people do when they're distracted. Tried to calculate (laughs) how much at today's rate uh, that would have been. And he told me the number, but it's actually irrelevant because we don't know how much a Big Mac cost back then, so, or a gallon of gas. So we don't know the buying power, but the point of it is unbelievable wealth. Second Kings 4, Solomon's daily provision. Okay, this was the menu every day for Solomon. 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Every day. Now, I don't know what you had to eat yesterday, but this is every day for Solomon. It's been estimated it would take 35 to 40,000 people to eat that much food in one day. And every day after every day, This is what Solomon had at his table. Summary statement, 1 Kings 9, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. We're talking staggering wealth here. I mean, if wealth made you happy, if money could make you happy, Solomon might have been the happiest man that ever lived because he was perhaps the richest man who ever lived. And it wasn't just like money itself. He leveraged his money for incredible building projects. So this is where sort of that Frank Lloyd Wright in him came out. He built beautiful uh, structures and gardens. Again, to give you the scale of what we're talking about here, in a time before bulldozers and, uh, you know, heavy equipment that could do this, he says here that he built pools. Archaeologists have uncovered pools near Jerusalem Here's three of them to give you a kind of a scale for what he was doing. The upper pool is the equivalent of 17 Olympic pools. The middle pool is the equivalent of 31 Olympic pools. And the lower one is uh, the equivalent of 44 Olympic pools. He goes, I built pools. Yeah, you built pools, right? (laughs) Pretty serious pools. 
That's kind of the point here. Wealth and possessions beyond what we can comprehend. Chronicles tells us he had 12,000 horses. Second Kings says that silver, the, the wealth of Jerusalem under Solomon, that in Solomon's day, silver was considered about as valuable as the rocks along the road. Oh, it's silver? It's not worth anything. It's around here, it's gold or it's nothing. Okay? When, when we live in a land where 20 bucks that are laying around on the road, people are like, ah, I don't even pick it up. It's not worth anything. Uh, that would be a wealthy society. That's like pennies around us. And some of us are very keen on picking up pennies, aren't we? You know who you are. He built palaces. He built his own palace. He built palaces for his wives, which we'll get into in a second. And of course, he built the temple of God, which is very uh, explained in great detail and was an extravagant building, and he overlaid like the whole thing in pure gold. So we're talking about a pretty amazing, wealthy guy. And so Solomon explores his heart, experiencing this wealth and all of these buildings, and he's looking in his heart and he's saying, is it making you happy? Is it making you happy? Are you happy yet? And what does he say about all of his money and all of his things? He says, it is all vanity. We have our own way of saying it. Money can't buy you what? Happiness. Money can't buy you happiness. And we all, we're, yeah, that's right. You know what? Money doesn't make you happy. But down in our hearts, don't we kind of wonder a little bit, right? When that guy drives by us in that uh, European black long sedan, right? And he's got a little smug look on his face. And you're like, oh, you can't be happy in that. But then you think, he looks pretty happy in that. Maybe I would be happy if I was in that. Or we see people that have incredible possessions and we think, what would that be like, really, to be able to live at that lifestyle? I have a friend that uh, I've been friends with for probably 25 years. He doesn't live here or in this area. But this guy is like, they talk about the 1%. He's in like the .0001%. We're talking about the crazy rich people with you know, luxury homes here and there and jetting around and all the rest, that's this guy. And he's a, he's a wonderful man, godly man, and uh, it's been a privilege to be a friend to him over the years. And I was golfing with him, this is years ago, I was golfing with him one time, and uh, um, I said, can I ask you a question? I've got that kind of relationship with him where I can kind of, it's like almost like a second dad type thing. I go, can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. I said, you know, money. I said, you've made more money than like a hundred guys could make in their entire life. Maybe it's a thousand, I don't even know, whatever it is. I said, is it true that all that doesn't make you happy? And I remember him, this is exactly what he said to me. He said, it's true. And that is one of the top 10 lessons in my entire life. Now, I heard him say that. It's one thing if, if, you know, the poor guy goes, ah, it doesn't make you happy. I'm glad I don't have it anyway. You're like, okay, but what do you know, right? <laughs> but then you hear it, you hear it from a guy that has all of that, and he says, listen, let me just tell you right now, it doesn't do for you what you think it will. That meant something. All these years later, I still remember him saying that. And that's essentially what Solomon is saying to us here now as like the richest guy maybe who's ever lived, incredible wealth. He says, it doesn't do for you what you think it will. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't satisfy. Now, you probably won't recognize this guy, but I'll just tell you quickly who he is. His name's Adolf Merkel. German billionaire, Forbes listed him, 2007, his wealth at $12.8 billion. That's a lot of money, isn't it? $12.8 billion. And on the night of January 5th, 2009, he said goodbye to his wife, put his coat on, and he walked to the railroad tracks near his house, and he laid across the railroad tracks, uh, and he took his own life. $12.8 billion. 
The last category that Solomon describes is sensual pleasure. And of all the things that Solomon's famous for, this might be the number one. Look at what he says. He says, in addition to all these other things, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Solomon was a Renaissance man. Solomon was a... uh, a sensory guy. Solomon was just not a philosopher. He was a guy that experienced the world. And this includes art and music. Uh, the, the, the text tells us that he bought singers and musicians. And what that means is that, let me backtrack. It's hard for us to understand what it was like to live in the ancient world, especially when it comes to like music and the experience of music, because we have music around us all the time. You get in your car, car radio playing music. You drive to work, they might have, you know, music playing in the elevator or whatever. You go to the store, music is playing. We have music on our phones. We can stream Pandora or whatever anytime that we want. Our lives are, we're, we're filled with music all the time. But the ancients, if you were to hear music, you had to have, you either had to be a musician yourself or you had to have a friend who was a musician in the little village or you had to like buy your own symphony. And if you're Solomon, what do you do? Let's just buy a symphony and put him somewhere in the palace. It'll be fine. And that's what he did. He bought musicians. He bought singers. They were like full-time. They're there anytime. They're playing music. He loved music. It also says that he loved women. In fact, here the text says that he had many concubines. And uh, this, of course, is part of Solomon's uh, notoriety, I would say, is that uh, he indeed had many. In fact, the Bible tells us that Solomon had 700 wives. Now, some of you men right now are thinking, how could he have 700 wives and be the richest man in the world, right? (laughs) How do those two things go together? In addition to that, he had 300 concubines. Okay, so a concubine was basically in the ancient world a pseudo-wife who was available to you. So combined, Solomon had every day a thousand women. And the word here, to actually explain it, I would, I would blush a red that all the campuses could see, okay? Because it is a very sexual, sensual word that is used here for concubine. And the intent that he's just saying, hey, I experienced sexual pleasure. And he had many, many women with whom to do it, which was a sign in the ancient world, by the way, of a king's glory. I remember some years ago, I was on a missions trip to China, and we were in Beijing, and so we did a little little tour in Beijing and saw the Olympic stuff, and we went to the Forbidden City there, which is the ancient... uh, like the palace of the, of the ancient king, kings of China. So big, big uh, tourist attraction. So I remember we stood in line, big line, tons of people waiting to go through this big gate and into this huge complex. And so we walked into the, the complex and it's just a humongous courtyard. So off in the distance, you see the palace, okay? The palace and it looks like what you see in the local Chinese restaurant, right? That kind of look right there. And I'm just trying to contextualize here. All right, Chinese food. And lining both sides of the courtyard was all of these rooms, like, and they're not very big, just door after door after door after door after door, just sort of extending as far as you could see on both sides. And the guy that I was with, I go, wow, look at that. And I look on both sides and I go, I go, what are all of these? And what are all of these? And he goes, that, that's where the concubines lived. And I'm like, Wow, because <laughs> it just goes off in the distance, you know, you're thinking, that's a lot of concubines. And uh, that was just a sign of the glory of the, of the kings of, of, of China. Same with Solomon here. So we see then this kind of, you know, he even says that the delight of the sons of man. If you take a man in his, in his most sort of fleshly, go for it sort of pleasure, this is, uh, this is appealing, this sounds exciting. This sounds like maybe something that, man, if I, if I had a thousand women every day at my disposal, life would be awesome. It'd be great. 
Or in our day, if I could have hookups whenever I wanted, man, life would be awesome. I'd be so happy if only I had that. We could spend a lot of time right here, couldn't we? To think about our culture's view of sex and how it's portrayed to be almost like the ultimate human experience. And when does a boy become a man? He becomes a man at his first sexual experience. And things like this that in our culture elevate the sex and sexual pleasure to an ultimate place and suggest to our young people that this is really what life is all about. To think about Daytona Beach this week, filling up with college students for the annual orgy. And just things like this that now almost feel commonplace to us. But if you step back and you're like, man, our culture thinks sex is where it's at. And yet, what do all promiscuous singles and married people come to discover about sex? Go ahead. You can talk now. I'm kidding. Nobody wants to say anything. You're all looking at me like this. (laughs) We come to discover that it's vapor. It's vapor. Specifically, it doesn't last. Like the heroin, or like the new motorcycle, or the pay raise, or the whatever, the joy that you experience in that moment does not last. And in the morning, you're right back to all the problems that you had the night before. And the lover leaves, and the sense of intimacy quickly fades. And sex doesn't deliver what you want it to deliver. And the guy that had a thousand wives says, this is true. So much to say here on this, you know, just the sexualization of our culture and the sexualization of our young people. You know, now you don't have to have a thousand uh, women. There are hundreds of thousands of digital concubines available online at any given moment. You know, at least Solomon had to marry 700 of them. Now, you just have to turn on your computer or turn on your phone, and there they are, concubines, as many as you could possibly want. And yet, is that making us happy as a culture? I don't think so. It's destroying us. Do you know this guy? The sports fans will know this guy. Wilt Chamberlain, famous basketball player, Hall of Famer, NBA. Wilt Chamberlain, in his biography, claimed to, in his lifetime, have slept with 20,000 different women. And that was big news when it came out, if you remember. 20,000 different women. And I've seen people try to calculate, you know, every day how many that is and all of that. And, you know, it seems like a boast, but he said it was true. Will Chamberlain died October 12th, 1999. He was found by paramedics in his Bel Air mansion alone. Solomon's conclusion about all of this is verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. In other words, I continued to be objective about my experiences. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11, here's a summary. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Especially from this guy. To have experienced all of these things and all of these possessions and all of that, that man naturally thinks, maybe that's going to make me happy. And he gets to the end of it and he says, all of it is like chasing the wind. 
One translation goes with, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And what's powerful about this is that we live in a day where all of these things that he's talking about is what the world wants us convinced is where life is really at. It's sort of that party thing, live for the weekend, get with your dudes and hang out and drink and, you know, tell stories and watch sports and maybe, you know, hook up with a girl afterwards and man, wouldn't that be an awesome life. And you watch the movies and the media and what's communicated to our young people, it is consistently this same hedonistic worldview that life is lived on the level of pleasure and that the happiest people are the people that have the most pleasure. That's where life really is at. That's what life is all about. And then we look at the famous people that have had all of those things and many, many others. That was easy to pick this list that I used today because there were so many famous rich people that had all the sex and all of the possessions and all the things, and yet at the end of their life they say, my life doesn't matter, and they take their own life. Does that not, and these are the cultural icons of our world and society, the most famous people that we, that are adored and cheered for and you know, albums bought and all the rest, and they're at the end of their life going, bam. Solomon says there's nothing here. Been there, done that. Nothing to it. And I wonder today if you believe that actually. Now we're in church. We all believe it here, don't we? Oh yes. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my song. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's red sway. Amen. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And then we leave and we step back into our normal life. And I want to ask you again, do you believe what Solomon is saying and how have the endeavors of your this last week the things that you really were all about, the priorities of your heart, how do they reflect that you don't think that this, these are the things that make you happy? Or are you living in this like duality where you believe one thing, but you live according to another set of values? Which I would suggest to you is what you actually really, really believe. And that's why this is not just a message for the playboy at the bar on a Friday night. This is a message that the church needs to hear, especially in a materialistic culture like we live in today. I've not heard one amen this entire sermon. <laughs> amen? I mean, this is, this is life. And this is one reason we're going to do two weeks on this passage, okay? And our time is escaping. I, just, I have two applications that I maybe am going to explore next week a little bit more. But remember I told you, when you read Ecclesiastes, you've got to read Genesis, you've got to look at Genesis 3, look at the text, and look forward to the cross and to Jesus. And in doing that now with three eyeballs, what we see in this text here is one more reason to understand the greatness of Jesus and to see that Jesus is better than Solomon. Jesus is better than Solomon. Now why do I say that? Who is the richest person in the world? It's not Bill Gates. Who's the richest person? Now, my daughter right now would say either God or Jesus, and that's not who I'm going for. Who's the richest person? Satan is the richest person in the world. And the reason that I say that is the temptation of Jesus. Third temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and says, it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, I will give all of this to you if you'll do one thing. Bow and worship me. Now Jesus doesn't say, it's not yours to give because Satan is the ruler of this world. He is the king of this world. It was his to give. 
And there's a lot going on there, Satan offering Jesus lordship of the world without a cross, etc. But part of what is, is being offered here is fame and wealth and the possessions of this world and all the kingdoms of this world is offered to Jesus. How would you handle that? How would you handle that if somebody said, hey, all you got to do is compromise a little bit and I will give you billions of dollars. You say, oh, I would never do that. And yet a couple weeks ago, I heard all kinds of debate about, you know, when the lottery got to a billion dollars, even amongst Christians, they're like, hey, well, maybe now's the time, right? So in principle, I'm against it when it's under a billion, but I'm for it when it's over a billion. And I'll compromise my principle because, wow, that's a lot of money. Imagine being offered trillions upon trillions the wealth of the world if only you compromise just a little bit. And we see in Jesus there in that temptation a basic understanding that Solomon did not have. Jesus understood that real meaning in life does not come from all the wealth of the world. It comes from a right relationship with your creator. And his response to Satan is, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus understood where real joy came from, and the world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. And secondly, we see here that Jesus is better than any earthly pleasure. Jesus is better than any earthly pleasure. And I want to talk more about this next week. And that's a crazy statement. Like if we had a billboard, you know, Bethel Church, Jesus is better than sex. People drive by there going, those people are nut jobs, right? Like that is just, in our culture, to suggest that something is greater than the God of this world is silliness, right? And yet, we stay here, say here right now that Jesus is better than sex and heroin and a mansion and a great painting and music. That Jesus is better than any of these pleasurable experiences. And there are many reasons for this, but one of the obvious ones is what we call the law of diminishing returns. And the law of diminishing returns says this, that no matter what you experience the first time, the second time, it's not quite as good. And so you have to somehow add to the experience or do it a little bit differently, have a little bit more of it in order to get the same buzz, the same pleasure that you had the first time. And everything in this world operates by the law of diminishing returns. You know, you go to that special place on the beach, it's awesome the first time, and the second time it's really great. But it's not the same as the first time, etc., etc., etc. So the law of diminishing returns. We live in a world that is always going this way. All of the joys and the pleasures and the happinesses, they are, they're in decline, and they lead ultimately to a time where there is no pleasure, death itself. But Jesus offers a pleasure that is the opposite of the diminishing returns. It's rather, it is the increasing returns. Because to know Jesus, and by this I mean to know him by faith, to believe in him as Savior and Lord, to believe that he died on the cross for our sins, resurrected on the third day, to believe the promise of God and Jesus, that if I believe in him, I am given forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that like to be a disciple of Jesus is to experience the thing that down in my soul I actually am looking for. It is the restoration of my relationship with my creator. Now, I'm a human being. I'm flawed. My experience of joy in Jesus is up and down like this. And the Bible says that's what it's going to be like. Now I'm looking through a glass that is all foggy and murky. I can't see him clearly. My experience feels like that. But someday I am going to see him face to face. In other words, with Jesus, it is only going to get better. And that better is ultimately an experience that is ongoing. Earthly pleasures, fleeting. Jesus' pleasures, ongoing for eternity. 
And so we look then at what the world has to offer, which is always going down this way, and what Jesus has to offer, which is always going up this way, and no matter how great the thing that the world is offering, the thing that Jesus is offering is better. It is a pleasure that is better. Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The experience of eternity with Jesus now, yes, imperfectly, perfectly in heaven and the new earth will be a kind of hedonistic sensory, pleasurable experience that will cause us to look back at the best things that this world has to offer and to see them as being little foretastes of the kind of joy and experience that we have forever. Now, you gotta come back next week because I'm gonna dig up this quote and I can't quote it or I would right now from C.S. Lewis because he was asked, will we miss sex in heaven? You gotta come back to hear the answer to that, okay? But it ties into this very truth. But the bottom line that I want you to hear is, pleasure in this world doesn't satisfy. But the pleasure and the joy that we have in Jesus does and will forever, which is why he's better. More on that next week. What I want to do right now is just have a little time of meditation, okay? We're going to conclude today with a little time of meditation. And on the screen, just to to prompt our thoughts a little, uh, we have just a basic question. We, We want to look into the Word of God, and we don't want to be like the foolish man who looks and then runs away, forgets what he looks like, but to honestly say, God, what do you have for me now? Say, dear God... In light of what has been taught today, how should I change? How should I obey? How can I please you more? So we're just gonna have a little music play and let's just, can we bow our heads right now? I'll I'll guide you through this. Just bow our heads and, and say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. I've come to church today. I wanna, I wanna change. Make me into the man, the woman, the disciple that you would have me to be.